Hey guys, it's Katie and Mandy. Welcome to the Dirty Britches Minisode. Hi everybody and welcome to our dirty laundry. I'm Mandy. And I'm Katie. And I'm depressed today. <laughs> I feel I, I mean, say- <laughs> we usually come to you with super uplifting stories. No, just kidding. We don't. No. And today <laughs> we're just feeling the world. So yeah. yes, Katie, what's, I feel what's going on? You, The word was so perfect. When we got on, you're like, how are you? And I'm like, Ugh. and you said, oh, you look defeated. And that is just the right word. I mean, it's just a moment. I will work through it. But I feel like in, you know, who I was thinking of was when we interviewed Sally Rush Wagner as our first Mm -hmm. expert interview so many months ago. And she Mm -hmm. talked about having to give herself white girl timeouts, you know, even after all these years of her activism and solidarity. And I feel like this week I just had, um, you know, multiple times where I, I felt like I was super clumsy and made missteps and, just, I'm just mad at myself and it's frustrating and we don't even need to get into the specifics. It's not that I wouldn't share them. It just feels like I don't need to belabor it for everybody, but just moments where I felt like I just was inconsiderate or wasn't being reflective enough or was like just falling into white lady behavior that I didn't, that I know better than. And so I'm just mad. And then just being kind of like an inconsiderate spouse, like leaving piles of stuff places and snapping at my kids and basically just not rolling with my PMS in ways that make me a person anyone wants to be around. So happy (laughs) fucking Thanksgiving. This is, this is before Thanksgiving starts. This is before everything that this is where I'm at. Let me counter it and tell you my thoughts on that, because I feel the exact same way. Like Mm -hmm. I very much like get irritated at myself as much as everybody else does. Well, maybe not. I mean, (laughs) my husband may get more irritated at me than I do. I don't know. Um, But so I got some Instagram ad because, you know, I let I let it track my preferences because it's a genius and it tells me exactly (laughs) what I need all the time. Um, So I downloaded this app and I mean, I don't even know what it's called, but I suppose I don't need to do an unpaid advertisement for them anyway. Um, But it's something about like online cognitive behavioral therapy stuff that you can do on your own through this app. Mm-hmm. And it was asking me to like pick what what I wanted to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I ended up deciding I wanted to pick was like my kind of like obsession with perfectionism. And I think mm-hmm. this is the underlying problem to mm-hmm. all of this feeling defeated is feeling like we have to do everything right all the time. Mm-hmm. And not that I don't think that self-reflection and improvement and recognizing when you fucked up is important, especially as white women, because we do it all the time. Mm-hmm. But we also have to recognize that perfectionism is also a tool of white supremacy mm-hmm. that is very pervasive in our lives and that we have to balance that, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm not good at balancing it. I definitely think that I go more towards the side of like, I need to do this better. I need to to be a better mom. I need to be a better activist. I have to do my job better. I have to do Mm -hmm. all of these things when sometimes you just need to be like, you know what? I am where I'm at and I know that I'm working on it. I know that I'm not trying to stay in patterns that are 
especially in patterns that are harmful to others. Like I think those are the Mm -hmm. ones to focus on and try to change Mm -hmm. the most. But at the same time, being okay with not getting things right. And and the thing that I focus more on that this week is I feel like sometimes I feel like I just really suck at being a parent because I'm really Mm -hmm. impatient. And so I just like lose my shit over things like immediately because and I think part of that is a a factor of having so much going on that I don't have time to deal with setbacks. And so if there are any, I get super frustrated. Mm -hmm. But I think that working on that is important because then I'm like, well, my kids need to see that they don't have to be perfect about everything, that they don't have to get everything right. And they need to know how to respond when things come up that you weren't planning Mm -hmm. on and how to do it better and all of that kind of thing. So anyway, that's what I think. That's what my 10 minute session on my app today (laughs) Uh, helped me to kind of work with work through. I know this will shock people. This is not a podcast about two friends getting therapy together. Uh, (laughs) Kind of of is. Yeah, it is a type of therapy (laughs) to learn about these histories. But the last thing I will say, I really, really appreciate all of that. And remembering that perfectionism itself can be a tool of whiteness for sure. And that my need to like have people tell me it's okay or that they forgive me or that they still respect and like me or whatever it is that I want from them. They don't owe that to me. And I Mm. just need to be okay with that and like keep moving. And for me to obsess over it or like need them to make me feel better is just making the harm I caused worse. (laughs) You know, it's just piling on. So like I do what I can to own up to like, I've fucked up. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. I, like, I can't believe I did that, but I did. And I'm sorry. And I'm watching for ways to not do that again and trying to make it right. And then just moving on. Like, even though I would love to have people be like, it's okay. You're wonderful. Like that's, that (laughs) is whiteness too. Like I don't get to feel good about it right now. I just have to sit feeling kind of shitty and keep on going and doing my best. So anyway, appreciate it. Yeah. This is all like our Thanksgiving special, (laughs) not a heartwarming (laughs) musical. If anyone was hoping for that, (laughs) but at this, in this podcast, if this is your first time listening, welcome. We are two white women who are friends from childhood. And we learn about the stories of white women throughout history and whiteness and womanness as systems and structures that have done really bad things. And as our Thanksgiving special. There are so many ways we could take this because there are so many ways that Thanksgiving is super problematic and messed up like in every conceivable way. So I wanted to push myself to, to learn about a dimension of it that I hadn't really known about before. Uh, cause hopefully it's really obvious to people that the myth of Thanksgiving is just that it did not happen that way. Like almost all of it that we celebrate with crafts in elementary school is just nonsense and garbage and awfulness, um, hurtful colonial bullshit. Um, But here's a little story for you about the woman who I think we can credit modern Thanksgiving celebrations with. Um, And she's a white woman. And I know when I texted you her name, (laughs) you looked a little bit into her and you're like, oh, we know her. We know her. <laughs> and I was also reminded of your statement, like, beware of white women commemorating things. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's so true. 
if a white woman uh-huh. is proposing a holiday, immediately say no. You don't need to hear any other details. Just no. No. So her name is Sarah Josepha Hale, and she was born in October, so not too far off from where we are, in 1788 in Newport, New Hampshire. And some of this comes from a womenshistory.org article and then a history.com article, which I normally avoid because they're usually like dominant narrative incomplete. But I think that actually serves the story well. Like how do mainstream sources remember this woman? And it's Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. like girl power, women doing stuff. Like that's it. There's no critique or unpacking. So so this is Sarah Hale. So she was, her parents at the time in the 1780s believed in education of both girls and boys. And so she had a lot of formal education beyond what maybe was typical for other girls her age at that time. When she was a little older, she married a man named David Hale, who was a lawyer and supported her like intellectual interests. And then within nine years of being married, they had five children and then her husband died. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Thanks Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she ended up, she was like a, liked writing on the side. And so she turns to poetry as a way to make money for her family. And she wrote this book, Poems for Our Children, that included Mary Had a Little Lamb that went like gangbuster. Just everybody loves Mary and that lamb. So I was thinking when I read that, as I read briefly about her, I was just like, man, the standards were low back then. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was recalling that poem and I'm like, what the fuck? That's what got you famous? I mean, I'm sorry. I I sung it to my kids. Obviously, everyone knows that, but it's not a work of genius. It's not really that gripping. It it just repeats the same words. There's like really not a lot that happens. Does she lose the lamb? I don't even remember. It had to follow her because apparently she didn't even give enough shits about it. (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere that Mary went, her lamb lamb just followed her. Or maybe she was just talking about her kids that she was stuck with, like following her (laughs) ceaselessly. It's like actually not a poem for kids. It's like a veiled cry for help. Um, well, she we're writes this poem. We're just making shit up now. Now we're just revisionist history here. Yeah. So she, this poem is super famous. And then in 1837, she becomes the editor of a publication called Godie's Ladies Book. And mm-hmm. I'm picturing this as like Good Housekeeping yeah, magazine. Yeah. Like yep. Martha Stewart Living kind of magazine, and it was incredibly popular. And as editor, she was really powerful because she got to decide what got into this magazine that was all about women and child rearing and domestic, you know, like manners, housekeeping, housekeeping, like decorating, you know, meals, recipes, like all that kind of domestic life, basically. Mm -hmm. Um. And because she became a kind of famous person in this way, she used her platform to support other causes. But these should be red flags to anyone who's been listening to this podcast from the beginning, that she supported women's education, did not support suffrage, and wanted abolition. Like, all those things should be like, bing, 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 red flag. Yeah. Um, right. Of just, it reminded me of like all the women that we learned about in the very beginning, the anti suffragists. I mean, they were all heavily into education, women's education. Yes. It wasn't really, it was never about empowering women. It was about women 
being better situated to further empower men. Like you've got to be, you've got to be educated so you can teach your children better. But by children, we really mean your male children because that's what's important. I mean, yeah. Like just to be really like super powerhouse homemakers was the mm -hmm. goal. That was like the pinnacle of women's contributions. She, she did, she, did not believe in women's participation in politics because it would keep them from being good wives and mothers. Um, So yeah, that's her jam. She did support women's rights as property owners. And I wondered if that had to do with her widowhood. I wasn't sure, but um, that those were her kind of pet issues. Um, Also into abolition, thinking slavery was immoral, but we will get into why that is a way more complicated position for her. And then I didn't know this either, but she raised money to preserve various historic sites, including Mount Mm -hmm. Vernon, referred to as George Washington's home in this womenshistory.org article, um, also known as a slave labor camp, and then supported the construction of the Bunker Hill Monument from the Revolutionary War. To honor like patriots. So she's very much like a proud American women's mom figure person who ran this magazine that was like encouraging a certain type of domestic, like very, like I just kept thinking of like a Martha Stewart kind of figure in some ways. Um, Except for minus the part about smoking weed with Snoop Dogg. Right. Or going to prison. She would for... not have done that. <laughs> right, right. No, no, I don't think she would have done that. Um, so she wrote a couple of novels, um, one being a novel called Northwood. And then the novel I want to focus on today is called Liberia or Mr. Peyton's Experiments. And it was published mm-hmm. in 1853. Mm-hmm. And all of this comes from an article from Susan M. Ryan in the 1995 edition of the New England Quarterly. And at the time she wrote it, she was a doc student. And I couldn't find out more about Susan M. Ryan. If anyone knows, let us know, because I thought this article was super interesting. So this novel, it came out about the same time as Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. like a, a whole batch of white women from the North who are writers writing these novels that are couched as abolition novels, like to try to drum up support for abolition. But they're more complicated. Uncle Tom's Cabin is definitely the most famous one and controversial in its time for different reasons. Um, but hers was also like, I mean, she sold a lot of copies, but it ends up not getting covered the same way. And Sarah M. Ryan in this article talks about how it's her theory is that like Frederick Douglass had a newspaper where he didn't review it, but he did review her cookbook and that that was maybe like a passive aggressive way to be like, look, Stick to the recipes. Like, I'm not even going to (laughs) bother to review your bullshit novel. Okay. So in this book, and keep in mind, she's very um, pro-abolition, but also pro-colonization of Liberia, which was this idea that when people, when Black people are emancipated, we should send them back and then everyone will be happier that way. Okay. So Mr. Peyton is the main character, I guess, in some ways of this book, although it then kind of transfers to the people he used to own. 
He was a Virginia enslaver in the book, this character. And all of the people who enslave people in the book, according to Sarah M. Ryan, are like very benevolent. Um, and she, Sarah M. Ryan says, quote, Hale presents a version of slavery so benign, it hardly seems to require abolishing. And that even when he emancipates people, because primarily because um, he's kind of nearing the end of his life and they were loyal to him during an insurrection of other enslaved people, that some of the people don't even want to be freed, that they're like, we love it here and this is our home and this is what I've known and um, I'm going to stay. So not maybe the world's most realistic depiction. And then yeah. the, the folks who do want to kind of try out their freedom, Mr. Payton runs these three experiments, they're called, to basically help them from becoming, quote, idle, degraded, and worthless men. So the first, it reminded me almost of like the three little pigs or like a fable where these different episodes happen. So at first he sets this family um, or, or several people up on a farm, and that goes well for the first year, but then um, they become, quote, lethargic and debt-ridden until he... <laughs> picks like a few of them who seem that they might be like more hardworking and then gives them their own private land instead of like a communal land. And then they do really well with that. So there's a lot of like capitalism underneath this. Like if you just can own your own land and make your own money, then you will be incentivized to do well. Then So after it fails for most of them, he sets this group up in a second, quote, scheme for improvement with jobs in Philadelphia. But the family gets too invested in like fancy clothes and music lessons for their kid and like going out and entertainment. And so they don't save money. They're not like frugal people. And so she does have like a working class white mob attack them at one point, but they really like their bigger problem is not racism. It's that they're bad budgeters pretty much. And then this white missionary swoops in and teaches them budgeting skills and they get better at it. But um, <laughs> that's still the second experiment, like clearly didn't work very well either. Um, mm -hmm. And throughout the book, Sarah Emine says she basically um, thinks that slavery is bad because it taught black people to hate themselves and have a lack of ambition. Oh, okay. That that's why slavery is bad. Okay. <clears throat> and Sarah M. Ryan says, in order to promote colonization, Hale must present a population sufficiently helpless that its success in the United States is impossible, but sufficiently powerful that its later achievements, the founding of a new nation is credible. And that the real the real problem for them is that they have to be like measured up against white people who are, overpowering in their superiority. And so if they can just be someplace else, they'll be able to like make a better life for themselves. So the idea is to go to Liberia and there they are to model themselves after white settlers. She actually calls them pilgrims, but she puts it in quotes. And Sarah M. Ryan says like, she can't bring herself to use that term without some kind of separation. Well, like they're not real pilgrims, but you know, like, like the pilgrims yeah. we love, like this yeah. us and them. Um, and then it's, they set up this system, like a, basically like a settlement of Liberia. And so the, the article says it becomes clear that the absence of whites is a necessary, but not sufficient condition for black actualization. The immigrants must also have a group of people whom they can dominate 
The African natives, of course, serve that purpose. Despite numerous battles with native tribes, the settlers soon have the upper hand in the colony, economically, culturally, and politically. Natives work for extremely low wages and often serve as the colonists' house servants. Junius, the missionary, considers the natives to be, quote, sunk in the deepest ignorance and superstition, and he Christianizes them by denouncing their fate, quote, with the utmost boldness, while the natives listen quote, in meek submission to his sermons and agree in time to replace their gods with his. So it's all about like private property and colonization and Christianization. And at the mm-hmm. um, end of this other novel that she writes is like kind of a precursor to this novel. She says, quote, Liberia has solved the enigma of ages. The mission of American slavery is to Christianize Africa. Oh, Thoughts okay. about that being the <laughs> purpose of U.S. slavery? Uh, I mean, it just seems like a way of justifying everything that was done. Like, yes, we need to end slavery, but really it served its purpose kind of a narrative. Like mm-hmm. it had to happen. So let's not be too hard on ourselves and mm-hmm. listen, if these people then want to be successful like us, they're going to have to go do the same thing we did anyway. Like it mm-hmm. just seems, yeah, yeah. A big old apologist type. Well, writing. in fact, Exactly. Sarah M. Ryan says in the paper, not only then have whites exonerated themselves for their participation in slavery by fashioning the satisfactory remedy, but they can also congratulate themselves for having given blacks the training, Christianizing and general, quote, (laughs) civilizing that assures its successful application. Um, And then she goes on to just criticize the novel from just like a writing perspective is like it's boring Mm -hmm. and it gets bad at the end, especially because she then just goes into full propaganda mode for this colony and kind of forgets about the characters and is just straight up like a commercial for Liberia. Um, And she says, what other nation can point to a colony planted from such pure motives of charity, nurtured by the counsels and exertions of its noblest, wisest, and most self-denying statesmen and philanthropists and sustained from its feeble commencement up to a period of self-reliance and independence from a pure love of justice and humanity. Um, and then Sarah M. Ryan says, Hales is a story of white nobility and self-indication of which the transformation of slaves into colonists is merely the occasion and barely submerged in these celebratory variations on the colonial script is a reinforcement of the legitimacy of the U.S.'s own founding and of its expansionist and white supremacist policies. For Hale presents colonization and nation building in entirely positive terms with only benefits accruing to both colonist and, quote, heathen native. Um And she asks, I think this is useful to the project we're doing here in this podcast. She says she's really interested in how their representations, they being Sarah Hale and other authors like, like, um, Harry Beecher. So, so, yeah, is all I could think of was, um, Lydia Marie Child, who I think is also an abolitionist this time, which was making me think of Julia Child. And then all I could think about was like (laughs) cooking and (laughs) (laughs) French cooking. Um, Anyway, she asks what she's interested in is how their representations of racial difference and proposed solutions to the problem of slavery functioned, what cultural work they did to perform or what cultural work they performed and whose interests were served by that work. Broadly speaking, how did these ideas circulate through what might be termed the racial economy of antebellum America? That economy cannot be understood without considering the writings of middle-class white women, 
like Sarah Hale, the coexistence of their good intentions and their nonetheless damaging representations is a legacy that, however disquieting, we cannot afford to ignore. And I think that is like the story of our podcast. (laughs) Like, yeah, there are some white women with bad intentions and we will for sure call them out and learn about that. But there's also a lot of these white women who feel like, oh, look at me. I'm so concerned about the plight of these poor people who've been enslaved. And yet you poke at that and it just falls apart apart. so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So she, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I think of the few articles that I skimmed about her, like they mostly just highlighted her letter to Lincoln that she wrote about wanting to have this national holiday where we could all be unified and like celebrate in gratitude for a day, which these articles, which are very surfacey, as you mentioned, are reinforcing. I mean, that's, it's not that that's a bad idea. I think that it's easy for um, like conservative media and more conservatives to just think that, oh my lord, these liberals are going after everything. They can't even enjoy a holiday that's about gratitude, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but I think, it, and it's gratitude is of course not bad, but I think it depends on the context of it. Like we talked about in like so many other of our episodes as right. well. Like it's not to dismiss being grateful or. Um, to underplay like the importance of finding things that unify all of us that we can all work together on. But it's making sure that that gratitude doesn't fall into like a toxic positivity Mm -hmm. um, where we dismiss uh, the real struggles and reasons that people aren't necessarily grateful um, Mm -hmm. and where we lack then compassion and humility um, and recognition that the things that we're grateful for, not everyone has or not everyone values in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think that learning about all of these things that we've been learning about just brings to light that there's so much nuance in everything, like even things mm-hmm. that we think we all would agree on, like in the feminist fight for abortion. It's like, what's wrong with people who aren't getting on board with abortion? Well, it's not like the same issue for everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. just like all the things that we're grateful for might not be as powerful to every other person that's not in our same circumstance. Anyway, this it's all getting very convoluted, but it is, or could do harm. (laughs) Like the things that might be celebrated in Thanksgiving, especially the like superficial gross ways it gets celebrated so often, just like in, in like, target decorations or whatever it's that it's actually celebrating something that did a ton of harm. Yeah. Um, so there, yeah, I also am a super grateful person. I think gratitude is incredibly important, but there are other longer traditions of gratitude giving. It doesn't have to be just this, like a coming from a celebration of colonialism or capitalism or Mm -hmm. nationalism, you know, that it, there are other models of gratitude. Um, and some piece of this that I hadn't ever thought about before was, the ways that this holiday, it made me think about the book um, Dixie's Daughters that we read about yeah. the women who created this mythology yeah, yeah, of what the Confederacy was about and completely li- straight up lied or very misconstrued what the Confederacy actually was and what it was, why it existed. And, yep. and that there's this other piece of it and this this Thanksgiving. So thinking not thinking about Thanksgiving, like separating it apart from like 
a human desire to be grateful and why that can be like an incredibly healing and communal community building act, you know, which I think is very true and real. But what I'm talking about is like the U.S. federal holiday and all of its trappings of Thanksgiving, where that comes from and why that's a problem um, and why it's worth learning about other moment, other holidays like the National Day of Mourning that that exists or thinking about indigenous people's day or native American heritage month being November, like thinking about other things, but this part of it, it's relation to the civil war just links all these things together. It braids Mm -hmm. together anti-blackness and colonization and capitalism and Christianity, like all this tightly intertwined and like super patriotism that heroifies all of this and glorifies all of this. So Yep. She, of course, she was this, the editor of this magazine, you know, Fancy Lady magazine. And she keeps right. She uses that as a place to write about this holiday that she had celebrated when she like, apparently some folks in New England had some kind of like equivalent sort of thing that they would do. And so she was trying to encourage other people to have this holiday and like had recipes for it and things like that. And she would write politicians and the president. And um, this was starting in the 1840s. And so then she, it really kicked up a notch um, in the 1850s. And she was able to, I don't, I don't know that it's like single-handed, but she was definitely the loudest voice or like a loud voice. So by 1854, more than 30 states and U.S. territories had a Thanksgiving celebration on the book, but she really wanted it to be like a national national. holiday. And so in 1861 and 1862, this is again where we should be like a red flag. Um, Mm -hmm. President Confederacy President Jefferson Davis issued Thanksgiving Day proclamations following Southern victories. And then um, Abraham Lincoln Again, called for it a, a couple of different times, most noticeably after the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, and then she wrote a letter to Lincoln that gets cited as the main factor in his decision to declare it a national holiday as a way to, quote, unify us. And so yeah. there's just something so deeply white about that. Like mm-hmm, we've mm-hmm. had a fight. We we have had a war that have, has just killed hundreds of thousands of people over the issue of the expansion of slavery, not even really the existence of slavery at the time, you know? And yep. with like, I, and I say why I'm frustrated by her calls for unity is because it's in context of what happens next, which is the Dixie's daughters, like the daughters of the Confederacy presenting and super successfully presenting this like glorified myth of the Confederacy and the federal government pulling out of reconstruction in order to, you know, repair, but it's only between white people. It's just like, let's have the white Southerners and the white Northerners. Can we just get along again? Can we come back together? And that, that's what makes to me the, the origins of the federal, of it being declared a federal holiday so disturbing that it's about, and it's so relevant to what's happening right now is can we just find a way, like, can we just not be so you know, at odds with each other. And what that means is can white people and other white people get along again and like, fuck right. everyone and can else? those, can those of you who are loud and trying to bring attention to what the problems are and who need things fixed, just like shut the fuck up mm-hmm. for a little, like quiet down. You are disturbing our peace mm-hmm. kind of a 
attitude. That's where these calls for unity always seem so disingenuous to me. And you're exactly like unity for who? Like unity for trying to make peace for healing for what? Like restitution for what? Um, you know, I was listening to, I can't even remember because my brain is so foggy after this week, but, um, shoot, this is going to drive me nuts. Maybe I'll think of it as we're talking, but it was about how calls for reparations seem so radical, but they were happening at the exact same time that the U.S. federal government was literally giving away tracts of land to white settlers. Mm -hmm. And yet reparations for hundreds of years of slavery was like too heavy a lift Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the same exact time. So it's, it's that same sense. Like, are we really interested in unity and healing? No. Mm-mm. It, it it's about like the people in power not fighting with each other anymore and like setting aside their differences it's not about uh restorative anything it's not about writing these like really awful historic wrongs and like we've talked about in the past just the deep 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 ties between colonization and slavery and settlement and capitalism and christianity and just all of it just one yeah. stew yeah. of gross it's like a glossing over Mm-hmm. of all of that complicated stuff because it's just hard and we don't like that <laughs> I, I mean we do but most people. I know. well this the last <laughs> thing i have is she she died she retired as editor in 1877 and died two years later at the age of 92 so i yeah, guess she was 90 AF. and still working apparently yeah. She really loved capitalism, everybody. Jeez. She just kept going. Could not stop. I mean, we will link to this article by Sarah Emerine because it's really, really, really good. And her critique goes way deeper than what I've even outlined here. Um, and she really gets into how it connects to these other white lady novels at the time and the the arguments about colonization that are really complex and what the different different groups of people, why they supported or opposed it. Um, so I definitely recommend yeah. checking it out. But just thinking about right now calls for unity or like saying that something is divisive, it's just, it all just rang so current. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about like how things could have been so different post-Civil War and weren't, Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will try to get to this posted for tomorrow, which is the day before Thanksgiving. So maybe people can listen while they're preparing their Thanksgiving (laughs) food and whatnot. But but I mean, and I do hope that everybody enjoys Thanksgiving. I hope that though we give just a little bit more detail to a little more consideration to what we're thankful for and like push others for that too. Like maybe, I mean, listen, we all know that family fights are notorious for holidays anyway, so I'm not trying to say start some more, but I'm trying yes, to say, you are. yes, I, I am, but I am, I, I know you. <laughs> but I'm just saying maybe push a little bit or be the impetus for people thinking about things a little more deeply, um, you know, well, and, and, and what it means, what it means to really be in unity or what it really means to be in community and come together and what what is needed to repair harm in order for that to happen and, and grateful for what and grateful in what ways, like if we are grateful for things that aren't harmful, how do we show that gratitude in ways that don't create harm? I don't know. There's so much. And I'm just, like I said, I'm feeling like a (laughs) shitty white woman this week, but 
And I was also going to say, don't be hard on yourselves. Like just, Mm -hmm. I mean, we are. And anybody who listens to this podcast is already hard enough on themselves just by virtue of being here. And that's appropriate at some level, but maybe just Mm -hmm. like lay off it for a day or something and relax a little bit. I'll try. I probably won't succeed. No, same. Uh, it'll be whatever. I will. I promise I will get links up because I want people to check out the National Day of Mourning, and I want people to read this article by Sarah M. Ryan. I think there's a lot here, um, and that, yeah, there's just so much. So thanks okay. everybody awesome. for listening. Thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> sure. Evil laugh time. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.